Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome back to Varn Vlog. Um, assuming you were with us before, so I am continuing our conversation about early lash and the crisis of sixties liberalism compared to now. In the last episode, Elijah and I uh, basically went through the history of the American left really fast in thirty minutes. Um, I also talked about everything I thought was wrong <laughs> about two books I really like. And then we compared the differences between the the 60s crisis of American liberalism and its context with the current crisis of American liberalism and its context. And the only other thing I would add to that we didn't add in the last episode is the right-wing response and crisis of liberalism is more profound than it was then, too. While there was a kind of reactionary right emerging particularly in the South and the character of George Wallace and kind of racial populism in, in, in the South, more or less um, the, the conservative factions of both parties were okay with liberalism. Um, they were just trying to deal with the problems of the financial crisis is returning at the end of the sixties. Um, that is, isn't the same now. There's a pretty strong and pronounced right-wing critique of liberalism, and that actually does end the nearly 150-year trend of most of the American right just being liberals from another decade. So um, I think that's a contextual difference. We didn't mention in in episode one of early last in in the 60s crisis of liberalism, but we do need to mention today because I do think that's a that's a complicated factor in in things that we only briefly touched on with the fact that if you meet young reactionaries, they're really reactionary, but they are rare. Um, so with all that said, though, let's actually get into the two particular you know essays that we wanted to talk about. And one is at the end of the agony of the American left um, where Lash is kind of spelling out what this all has meant leading up to the new left in the 1960s. And let's remember when agony was released, once agony came out in what 68 Um, agony came out in, let's say in is this the copy that has like no date on it? That's so frustrating. Yeah, let's say definitely post uh, sixty nine. It came out yeah, in sixty nine. Yeah. I just uh, it's actually not in my copy either. I had to look it up 
online. But uh, so Agony comes out at 69. So that's like a, the, the height of all this, really. Um, and then uh, World of Nations, which is, uh, you know, we talked a lot about underread lash books. While there are essays in World of Nations that are well read, I think that entire book is a banger. And well, it's, it's so good. Um, even though it's like one-off essays and reviews, is structured in such a way to make an entire complete argument, right? It's like, like uh, it's basically like left-wing truly heaven. Yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to true and only heaven, which can't decide if it's left wing or not. Dubious. Um, yeah. Um, but I think that that leads us to 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 talk about you know what he sees um, happening in the sixties. So you wanted to talk about some specific essays in World of Nations. Um, and I think one of them is the, the alternatives to American liberalism essay. And then the other one that I want to talk about, if you don't mind, that I think is relevant is the, the end of cultural laissez-faire, which is also part of that. I think those are are pretty much two pieces of the same argument. Yeah. It's Um, a, it's a different, uh, alternatives to liberalism is like the middle section of the book. And it's basically just like the new left. Um, and then the end of the cultural, the cultural loss I fear, uh, birth, death and technology is fantastic. Um, is that the same? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it, it's one of my favorite essays in the book. And I think it is great because it points us to, it points us to the fissure points that actually ended up happening and the cultural politics that ended up happening rather than the cultural politics that the, that Lash wanted the new left to point, you know, to go towards. Though obviously he cared about birth, death, and technology at the same time. Um, so the the he starts the essay I wanted to talk about in um, Agony of the American Left with this Daniel Bell quote from the end of ideology: "The ideological age has ended." Uh, that turned out not to be the case. Um, is the basic argument of um, of the chapter, the revival of political controversy in the 60s. Right. I mean, basically, um, <laughs> history, the argument that history ended, which is another discussion you and I will pick up later in a different episode, uh, has been long with us. But um, Lash goes, yeah, but I didn't get rid of ideologies, dude. Yeah. Like, um, and I think we, at, at this, this period of, of post-war liberalism in America is the thing that feels most foreign to me. Like I do not, it's hard for me to conceive of a time where there is that much ideological consensus between not just parties. I can kind of conceive that, but factions of American life like that is really hard for for me to to put in one of the things that i talk about like when when uh when for example right wingers will go well we're the counterculture now and i'm like no you're not like 
this is just a divided cultural cat- status quo. Like there is no real cat- counterculture now. It's been appropriated and resourced and and recapitulated. There's no, there's no culture, right? So there's um, no like, like you have niche subcultures, sure, but like of which you are one of a thousand, my conservative friend. In so much that we have a political culture in America, it exists solely off of of often pseudo polarization um so so uh you know every administration increasingly justifies itself off crisis that was also common in in the time period lash is writing about in the time period of cultural controversy into the 70s uh then there's the michael sandell period and uh, Michael Sandel really kind of sees the end of this cultural controversy as like the ascendancy of the administrative state where we get the controversy, but it doesn't really affect anything because we farmed everything out to sub departments in the executive that kind of run on their own. Um, and that we try to te- we try to keep these like politics is, is the cultural controversies, but it's not actually that it's also just administrating this giant political apparatus. And those are two separate things. And um, I find it interesting because uh, we know that Latch was in dialogue with Sandel at one point. It shows up in a couple essays. Um, but uh, we are back in the crisis mode, and that is sort of this like we were talking about, you know, in the last episode, this continuity that kind of gets shaken up in 2007, 2008. But it's being shaken up by like the administrative state effectively, like like changes in the way we're operating the banks and this that, and the other. Um, it's not being shaken up in a way that like clearly is predictable. That's why you you mentioned like Lindsey Graham's calling for the nationalization of banks with Bernie Sanders. It's a very weird time. Um, and it's interesting also how quick we forgot that. Like that is buried that weird time period of like three years in the early Obama administration. And then we go back to the politics of cultural division um, with the Tea Party on forward and people like, oh, well, the Tea Party's this. I'm like, well, the Tea Party's actually kind of a return to the moral majority shit too of the 90s. Like it's not that being new, it's more right wing than the moral majority stuff was. Um, and also less based in reality, because in some real sense, like the claim that the majority of the public was actually conservative during most of the baby boom was true. Um, and that has not been true since the basically since the 2000s, increasingly young people are not. Um, in fact, actually, for as far as we know about voting patterns, that's where that's where the actual generation uh, uh, generational difference in voting patterns emerges for real, and that is in the two thousands. Whereas priorly voting patterns were predictable off your parents. Um, so, I think that's okay. Those are all interesting things to talk about, but but Lash is pointing out that like this age of controversy doesn't actually seem to mean what. You know, yes, Daniel Bell's right. The the, the liberal consensus is is over as an ideological apparatus, but there, but the alternative to it, the alternatives to it, don't really actually catch on. Well, they don't right? win, right? Um, or, I mean, I I guess 
Nixonian conservatism wins, which is not the same as the liberal consensus of, you know, uh, eight years earlier, but is but not... seems so much closer to it from this standpoint that liberal seems positively to the left of Barack Obama. I mean, that Nixon seems positively to the left of Barack Obama. But yeah, I also agree that in the in the standpoint of like the Eisenhower to the Johnson administration, Nixon is a break. Nixon's, like, Nixon's a break. And uh, but definitely the most potent, uh, the most potent counter arguments to liberalism in the form of Barry Goldwater and the new left are dispatched by the end of the sixties um, or appear to be dispatched by the, by the end of the sixties. Um, and Lash writes in the revival of political controversy that um, a lot of this is internal to the new left. So we've talked about some of the structural problems that happened in the last episode, but what Lash really focuses on is that the uh, new left and he says this on page 180, both the strengths and the weaknesses of the new left derived from the fact that it is largely a student movement based on alienation. And it has an attempt basically to redefine the uh, political issues as personal issues, that the political is personal, which is a big distinction from um, the, the cultural politics of uh, the earlier 60s, which defined culture as basically like a private endeavor. And didn't put cultural politics in the realm of uh, political discourse at all. Um, unfortunately, what this culminates in, in Lash's mind, is the pivoting of the new left from something that could be transformed into something, you know, into a real political movement uh, with the limitations of any political movement into basically like a bunch of uh alienated kids who are trying to prove their authenticity by doing more and more radical street theater um which is the conclusion he really comes to by the time he writes culture of narcissism uh the new left in in this telling uh becomes nihilistic despite the fact that in 1968 it's prior to knowing that they've been defeated um and he spends some time talking about uh, the possibilities beyond this alienation um, in the form of uh, either leaning into the contradictions within the university that he sees um, or trying to harness um, the professional class or the conscious constituency of liberals um, by pointing out the necessity of an alliance purely on a defense of civil liberties between the left and liberals, which can then be used to, you know, hopefully uh, turn forced liberalism to compromise with radicalism rather than the other way around. Though the postscript to Agony at the American Left says that this has failed because it's written at the 1968 Chicago Convention. Um, and it talks about how, okay, our attempt to realign the Democratic Party in the form of the McCarthy and Kennedy campaigns is over. It's kaput. There is now no way to maintain the American empire under liberal auspices in this telling, which gets us now to World of Nations and the unraveling of this uh, and the period of ennui 
and crisis that we said feel so you know familiar to us today? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that he that he de- definitely clearly spares out in World of Nations is this increasing cultural need to prove oneself radical through through uh, acts of personal rebellion, transgression, et cetera, which I think we see only accelerate up into the 90s. I mean, again, uh, I do think of like the left that I came out of before I became a conservative, like the left of my teens that I was exposed to as a working class kid was like tied up into the punk movement and arts movements and narratives about the 70s and... And, uh, and, you know, breaking out of your religious background for the most part, um, tied up in the weird shit like Wicca, like, and the personal as political was like, I think it was fully inverted by that point where the political was seen as pretty much personal and personal rebellion was, was pretty key to it all. This changes in the alter globalization movement a little bit around the battle for Seattle, et cetera. But, you know, prior to that, what the left was a was a kind of a collaboration of personal special interest and or identitarian politics. And by identitarian, I don't mean like, yes, there was anti-racism and that sort of stuff. But it was more I mean, like, literally, you're adopting the identity of leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way that, of countering alienation by right. saying, uh, I'm part of something. Right. I'm part of this group. I learned about the left through the reading list on the back of the Rage Against Machine CD. Uh, Which includes culture of narcissism. It does, ironically enough. Um, but, you know, this, it includes, th- that reading list actually, I still go back and look at it and I'm like, that's weird. I sometimes wonder, actually, if that's where I first encountered Lash. Huh? That would be hilarious. Um there should be a series uh, that you have on purely just Rage Against the Machine uh, reading list. Well, I also learned about Shining Path from them. So, but, you know, uh, but by by the odds that we were already making fun of them as Rage Against pretty much everything because it was it wasn't clear. You know, yes, there's radical Marxist books in this list, but like Tom Morello ends up being just a standard bog standard Obama liberal, right? Like. And Zach De La Rocca kind of disappears. <laughs> like, so um, I, I bring all this up because though that is the left of, of the 90s. It's the left of people a little bit older than me. It's the left of, of people like Doug Lane. Um, it's tied up in the zine culture. It's tied up into these fragmented post-70s counterculture movements that were often quite strange and sometimes only on the internet. Like Discordianism or, um, you know, the Church of Bob or these sorts of weird things. Um, uh, And then there was like the Green Party left, which was which, you know, had a history. It it comes out of the failure of exactly what Lash is talking about, but it's, you know, so thoroughly failed by the 1990s. It's like kind of a joke even though it's a mass party in some senses um, it's, you know, it's, it's membership base is larger than the DSA at one point for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though we don't talk about it cause it doesn't really do anything. Um, 
so I say all this to say, like, it's not that there was no left during the 90s. There's, you know, the Gen X left. It's not that it didn't exist, but it was super fucking fragmented. Um, and that seems to be a symptom of what Lash is talking about here. Like, what, 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 if you've given up on a, a class narrative or any kind of collective narrative, what's going to hold you together other than like temporary interest groups and cultural affiliations? And nothing. pretty much nothing. <laughs> like, What do you what do you take on that? Like, because you know, I'm trying not to read this also in li- in light of like lashes. Like, I mean, I I think that the one of the big changes between the postscript mm-hmm. in Agony of the American Left and the things he's responding to uh, in World of Nations is that in the at the end of Agony of the American Left, he's identifying the possible constituencies for a left movement which exists beyond a need for identification. It's just like, if you're a part of these groups, you'll be drawn to the left. This ended up not happening, but it's, you know, students, the conscience constituency of liberals, possibly professionals, uh, black people, ethnic minorities, the poor, you know, it's the, the usual hodgepodge, which has not succeeded in becoming, you know, a natural constituency of the left. But, what doesn't happen is what Lash calls for more explicitly in World of Nations, which is the foundation of a new party to educate these groups and collect their support. Um, and so there's nothing, there's no place for people to go beyond zine culture and beyond temporary sectarian organizations because there is no mass left politics following, uh, you know, certainly the, the defeat of McGovern in, in 1972 up until like, you know, maybe the, the Jesse Jackson campaign, um, but like it, it's pretty absent. Um, and Jesse Jackson himself is not as successful uh, in reshaping American politics more broadly as even Bernie Sanders, who's not particularly successful at it. Um, so basically, uh, you know, where is there to go? Nowhere, because nothing has been built. All right. And yet now we live in a time where something's been built, but it's still going nowhere. And, um, you know, we talked about in the beginning, like that I trace at least four attempts over the course of a century and two decades to actually a century and three decades, because it really starts in the 1890s to kind of take over the, the the Democratic Party. And in the first case, you know, in the William Jennings Bryan case, that doesn't even that that doesn't even seem like the obvious party you try to take over. Like, you know, it, it feels like maybe you go into Republicans, the radical Republicans were almost socialist anyway. Like that's only 20 years ago at this point. Like it's it but that's not where they go. Uh, that's kind of an accident of history and local politics um, and religion because it is tied into William Jennings Bryan's like Christianity. Um we talk about the, the 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 real shift with both the progressives, you know, having changed the Democratic Party to where it's not just a reactionary 
party it's reactionary but also not simultaneously and that's also true for the republicans so it makes some more sense and with roosevelt being in power the new deal the labor movement already being kind of headed in that way anyway and then the popular front happens and consolidates the left continuing along those paths with the exception of some trotskyists and some very ultra leftist um okay that's a thing then we hit the attempt in the in the late 60s, which was what Lash has said, can definitively loses and can't really be tried again um, by 1974-ish. Um, and then he, he talks about, you know, the culture of narcissism, which we are trying not to bring too much in, but it's sort of his explanation of what happens next and the fragmentation of, of Fordism and what that means culturally in the long 70s. Um, and by the long seventies, we really mean 69 through like 1982. Um, so that means, you know, to me, I I'm left with this. Well, of course the Gen X left was the way it was. And particularly when you add things that hadn't even happened yet into it, like the fall of the Soviet union, um, the rise of the Atari Democrats into the DNC, into, um, into Clintonism, and then and then it also happening across the pond and kind of happening in Canada all at the same time, you know, or roughly the same time. Um, although in Canada, it took a it took really Trudeau is the figure that kind of is their Blair, and he seems like he might be in power forever. So who knows? Um, uh, so, but it does definitely, that happens across the board in the English speaking world. And in some ways it makes sense from the world last describes at the end of the new left period, that that's what would happen even before we get to culture of narcissism, where he's trying to go into the psychology of it. Um, and the, the extent in which the depoliticization happens. Because I don't think he totally sees like the weird left of the eighties either. It catches him off guard a lot. Um, well, he, this mm-hmm. he doesn't see the left collapsing as absolutely as it did. Um, well, I mean, and, and in so much that, like he, like he gets, he kind of abandons Marxism, for example. Not that he was ever a hard Marxist, but he was a loosely speaking one, uh, from what I can tell, um, until the eighties, because like. He's like, these Trotskyist groups that still exist are always bringing the working class, like, they're just explaining everything in terms of false consciousness, and these other people are basically saying these people are stupid and conservative and we shouldn't deal with them, and their problems aren't real. Um, the problems of, you know, the crisis of progressive education, the cri- like, they're just like, no, that's not real, it doesn't affect, you know, it's not important. Um, the breakdown of the family is not important. Um, and, he- and here he talks about law and order. Right. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, I don't think, I don't think even Lash could have imagined the law and order backlash leading to the carceral state that actually emerges in the in in the late seventies, early eighties. His like descriptions here are like, we must have more jobs and uh, better education and remove corruption from the police force, and then we'll be able to do law and order. Right. Which is like okay. You know, <laughs> not anything we would imagine as law and order or, or like law and order politics. I mean, no, I mean, it, it, his law and order politics is very much like, you know, um, 
it's it's and one and one sense is like you know yeah we could have it but we have to like reincorporate all these people who you made surplus population he doesn't use that language by the by the 70s he does use it in the 60s um but it very much seems to be the case you know like well all this has clearly failed um and he he you know he his next projects in the middle period i think indicate his trying to deal with that one is dealing with the the crisis of the family uh and that's where that's where i'm like both the most and the least sympathetic to him at the same time um i think what he's describing as a crisis of the family is very real and i think what he's describing as the kind of feminism that actually ends up winning by the 70s is also very real. Something that like radical feminists now will call white feminism, but you know, really should probably be called bourgeois middle-class feminism. Um, Cause it's not just white. Uh, the, but again, the reason why I'm less sympathetic to them is he's got this weird trans historical notion of family that like he thinks is anthropologically justified, which absolutely is not like, um, and that's, that is one of the points where I think people accusing him of having some conservative instances are actually correct. Like, um, and I've talked about this at length in his Takoon essays. It's like become infamous. Cause that's where he like breaks with the left. Um, formally, I guess that's in 88. Right. Um, but He's also right that the left had given up talking. I mean, like, it, it's hard to put ourselves back into the 80s left. But, like, even the sectarian groups that are around. So by the time you get to the 80s, anti-revisionism is morphing into, like, Maoist third worldism. So it's, like, totally, we only care about shit elsewhere because the, our working class is utterly reprobate. Um, I feel like some of that has been, like, uh, let's come back. Of- yeah, it's kind of come back. Like the um, campus left when I was at school um, mm-hmm. shifted like during the time I was there from freshman year being like, we'll knock doors for Bernie to like my senior year. There being like fissures within the like more like pro Biden and less pro Biden wing of like the progressives. And then there being like a third worldist reading group on campus, basically. Yeah, I saw uh, that too. And I, I, saw that. I helped found and then was expelled from for being too revisionist. Um, shame Which is so funny. Um, anyway. But what what is funny to me is that, again, that's a mirror of the late 70s, 80s. This has happened before and yeah. exactly in that order too. I, like, I think, yeah, it's, I mean, a, a lot of it is tied, it's just tied with powerlessness, I think. Um, in large part. And that uh, I think people like, I think, you know, Lash is right that in a lot of his writings about the work ethic that and discipline and the need for compelling work and compelling, uh, you know, compelling politics that people want to take care of themselves. And if they're not given the chance to take care of themselves on the left uh, in the context of exercising real power and real politics. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll do it in the context of, you know, pretty meaningless power and meaningless politics in the sense that it can't affect anything, but you have your 
ideological purity and your cohesion and your internal focus and the idea that you're keeping something alive. Um, and you might be, I don't know. Uh, it just hasn't blossomed out of any of these groups into broader society ever in the United States. Um, which isn't to say that it won't. It's just that I don't think it's particularly likely. Um, yeah, I mean, well, one of the things that it usually involves for me is the romanticization of other places uh, and often not, like, often uh, a tendency towards victimology and degenerating into moralism and one of the things about like third worldism for that and this is not to say that there's not parts of third like third worldist description of reality that haven't been true in the past but it's funny because like by the time it comes up in the 1980s it's already kind of not true yeah like if you want to talk about super exploitation and all that, that that definitely exists, but it's not going on the way that they're describing it. Labor aristocracy isn't broken up on national lines. It's really broken up on core and periphery industry lines and regions. And it's even within the same country, et cetera. And so like, this is not super explanatory anymore, but people are really attracted to it because they still think in terms of States. Um, and that's the irony of World of Nations, too. Actually, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that title because that title is not obvious. Like, well, it's, it's talking about civil society. Right. Um, and it's using the Vico quote um, from his new science. There's actually this great, uh, in like the explanation mm-hmm. in the way back of the book. I don't know if you've ever read this. Um, but he has a reflection on the title where he talks about how Vico was trying to bring about a technology of, uh, of like politics almost mm-hmm. um, in the same way. And he writes this thing about Darwin and Marx also. Uh, wait, I'm, I'm digging this up. It's like one page. Um Okay, it's a little longer, Um, but basically he talks about how, like, Marx, um, we'll get, we'll get to this some other time because I'm I'm not, it's not, uh, it's not as communicable as I I imagined. Um, Oh, no, no, here, here it is right here. So he has this like reflection and he has this little like sentence as Marx once wrote when he noted the need for a critical history of technology that would do for human culture what Darwin's work has done for nature's technology. And would not such a history be easier to compile since, as Vico says, human history differs from natural history in this, that we have made the former, but not the latter. So I just think it's such a, that little like, hint about or not hint it's an explanation about what he's thinking with the title is so great that he's looking for uh in marxism a technology of history that resp- that he's applying here um in his own way to civil society as raised originally by vico um even though of course he's so anti-positivistic and critical of technology um he i guess he means it here more in the sense of uh you know technique 
Um, sorry, social was, technology. Like, yeah, that was a complete aside. It was completely irrelevant to the topic. No, I mean, but it's interesting to me because I've always, I've always like pondered whether Devico quote like the world of nations, what's he invoking there, and what what people are trying to get out of, and it. it it does seem interesting to me that like one of the centerpieces of the book or the piece we're talking about there, the alternatives to liberalism and then the is revolution obsolete piece. Those are two. That's the center of that book, like literally the center of that book. And um, part of the problem that the left has is how to conceive of itself, not just when it's lost its national pro, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a national politics and collective collective project, but also that it like this idea of a transnational left is both more possible because of communication and less possible because of strength of states. And that's in the background of all this. It's not something he writes directly about except in the piece about George Kennan. Um, but it's in the background of, uh, of all these essays. And so, you know, I kind of, as we talk about the crisis of liberalism, one of the things that we see right now that was not really at play in the 60s was a call for a new nationalism, like a real new nationalism. You know, like a return to the old God style of nationalism. That was not, I can't think of, even, even George Wallace wasn't really doing that. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, white supremacism was definitely, but even white supremacism wasn't really white nationalism. Interestingly enough, like, because in some ways they didn't need it, honestly. Um, Another thing that like Lash never we we never get the Lash really right about is the effect of the immigration changes of the night of the 1980s, which are done by Reagan, uh, which is kind of ironic given the long specter of American politics, right? But like he's, I think he's dead before that's really a major. They're started by Johnson, huh? They're the, started by Johnson. Yeah, they're really, but they're really accelerated under Reagan. Like that's when the numbers, well, he does jump dramatically, right? I mean, uh, because John Johnson gets rid of like the racial quotas and whatnot, but like, like the immigration regime fundamentally changing does not actually happen till the eighties. Um, and what does that mean, like? Because that that's the, we can't deny that that's a big driver in the current crisis of liberalism. Um, it's what drives a lot of the great replacement conspiracy theories, but it's also driven a lot of like, let's be honest, there was a whole lot of triumphalism assumed for about 15 years in the Democratic Party for it that a less white America necessarily meant that they won which is actually where the great replacement conspiracy theory came from. It was like the literalization and conspiracization of left of like left liberal rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know that people really want to deal with that, but it's true. Like, um, and you first see that the first place you see that is actually in the David Duke campaign. Um, and then it really 
accelerates at the end of the Bush administration. Particularly once, you know, Bush's own party pushes against his attempt to do another Reagan and be the person who actually does immigration reform. And you see this massive backlash to that. That backlash is part of what leads to the Tea Party, although there's also the last gap of evangelical politics in the Tea Party and some other stuff, and just some racism, but some other stuff too. There's also tax protesting that's part of the early part that fades away and, and stuff like that. Um, and they were tax protests against a Republican, by the way. I think people forget that part of it. Um, but that, that it's so interesting to try to, when we try to like, we talk, I talked in the beginning and in some ways, like I have thought that this feels like the seventies since the end of the Bush administration. I have actually said that like over and over and over again, like this feels like the way everyone describes the seventies to me. And yet it feels like the seventies in reverse for me. I felt like, like we went through like the Bush period, which was like a Nixon period. Then we had, then we had like a Kennedy who didn't die and, 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 uh, and, and Obama. And then we had like the new left, but from the backwards trajectory, (laughs) um, I remember even like I used to joke about it right before Occupy. I used to call it like the search for a new, new left. Like, yeah, now they've all folded back into consensus uh, liberalism. Right. And, and the DSA doesn't really seem to be like a, like what you see happen is two things. And I think you can kind of see this in, in two different movements, the disappearance of Michael Brooks and Jamie Peck from the majority report. So that's like a back to the pre, that's the aughts progressive norm of like Air America Radio that generated the the original majority port in TYT anyway. Um, and yes, they'll talk to Marxists and talk to left wing scholars, but like they're Democrats and we all know it. Um, and this like revanchist Marxism that like is like, well, yeah, but you know the aggressive parts of Stalinism. That's the best part. Like the best part is when we during war communism they reimposed the family and banned abortion. Like, and I'm like, okay. And also, racial nationalism is good, just like not just for white people though. Everybody gets one. And I'm like, okay. I I feel like there's a Mr. Show sketch from the '90s making fun of this very proposition, but whatever. Um. And so when you kind of realize, when you realize that, um, and you look at now and you go, okay, like, is this in some strange way, like the end of a cycle that actually began with our grandparents would lash? Like, is this cycle that long? Is it just that the boomers are finally leaving uh american politics right but but, i mean and and in some ways i I hate to give chris catron credit for a whole lot but he wrote a a somewhat insightful essay in his death of the millennial left book about how bernie sandersism was actually the vindication of the post new left 80s left that had just been kind of sitting in the background biding its time it was all it was all the younger baby boomers who were kind of 
who weren't really part of the new left anyway, but they had that mythology and they kind of came of age in the eighties and did a little bit and then fell back for two whole decades or three whole decades, really. And then, you know, who comes to lead the left now, this whole new loofful left is a bunch of fucking 80 year olds. Like, I mean, in some ways, literally it's the same people. Like the fact that like all these categories, I talked to you about this with PMC. PMC comes from this time period, right? It's a problem of this time period. It's 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 a concept that is dropped. You don't hear anyone but Adolf Reed talking about it for like forty years, and it's picked back up around twenty seventeen to explain the first Bernie loss, and then really catches on after the second Bernie loss, right? But in some ways, it feels like we're just going through this shit backwards. Like, and and then, yeah, like I always talk about, okay, all American generational politics are bullshit, except for the baby boomers. That's a material reality in the United States. It has to do with the post-war boom. It literally changed every fucking institution in our society was built for them. And they're utter narcissists. And they kind of got the benefit from both neoliberalism and Fordism, and no one else did. Like. Not they both of them. At some point, you just got to respect it. <laughs> right. Um, so, like, does this mean that the next flight won't resemble this? Have we finally given up going into the Democratic Party? The, the weird thing that I find about it is that a lot of people who oppose working with the Democrats under Obama off of the lessons that they supposedly learned from the time period Lash is writing about, supported it under Biden. And that's the harder thing to explain. I mean, my take on this is that uh, the boundaries of American politics, like as in who's voting for who, has looked remarkably similar from 1968 until basically like, you know, 10 years ago uh, in that it's like a general trend of like suburbanites being Republicans. And now they're like not doing that anymore. And if this whole like green capital thing succeeds in dramatically reshaping the political economy of, you know, of America, something different might happen. I don't know. I have no idea. I, it's going to take work. It's not going to be like a natural result of just like changing, uh, you know, populations. Um, but there are new opportunities, possibly. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, personally, I think the reason why people have switched from not wanting to work with Obama to wanting to work with Biden is probably just because of the trauma of, uh, of Trumpism. And the fact that they're so despondent about the possibility of an independent left doing anything. I mean, it does kind of leave the left with nothing to do because one of the things that I think is, I think this is different. Um, after the seventies, there wasn't a lot of leftists saying we should tell Reagan. Like we should have the leftist version of Reaganism. That was not a thing. There 
wasn't there was an anti bureaucracy uh, bureaucracy movement, and then of course there was the neoconservatives who right. were. But it wasn't. This wasn't a tailless movement. This is just outright betrayal. <laughs> like okay. yeah, I, I guess that's it. That's true. Like when you turned in the eighties, you turned right. Now there's people who want to maintain their Marxist identity, but follow Republican politics to some degree. At a time when Republican politics seems, it, it's weird because I've had arguments with like platypus people around this, where they're like, "Well, the Republicans still talk about how they believe in liberty and whatnot." And I'm like, "No, they don't." Like you, you're you seem to be talking about the Republicans of ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, like, I think they're like way worse in basically every way than they were like twenty years ago, which is hard to do. Right. The the fact that people get nostalgic about, I mean, hell, let me put it to you this way. Even Trump seems pretty fucking moderate from the standpoint of what is coming out of the Republican Party now. He just kind of does. Well, he is what's coming out of the Republican Party now. I don't think so. I think what we have now is like a parody of him. Like he's like, but he like Trump would never do what Ron DeSantis is actually doing in Florida. Yes. He might do it now, but that was never on his agenda. He would pick up that stuff if it suited him kind of superficially, but it was not the primary goal of what he wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, the whole thing about him is that he doesn't have any primary goals beyond like, just like be in there kind of. I sometimes wonder if that's your generation's like cope that you think that there's not an agenda there. I just think Trump's a moron personally. Um, I like, I think there's tons of people around him who have like insane like goals. Um, And I think that he's enabled, I think he picked up on um, a lot of undercurrents in the Republican party that, he tapped into and now give him support and that he now supports. But I don't think there's like anything substantive about him personally. No, I mean, well, that's, that's part of the, 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 the interesting thing about talking about the right today or what conservatism is today is no one fucking knows. Yeah. No, it's just like, it's like a black box. Like you look in there and it's like, what's going on. Um, But because also like when Trump is gone, it's not clear what replaces him because because like the Ron DeSantis agenda is not really the Trump agenda, even though it's like well, the if, if he lives as long as his parents, he'll be alive in uh, twenty thirty two. Woot! So just imagine if he's our like era's William Jennings Bryan, where he's running for every election. Trump nomination twenty twenty four, Trump nomination twenty twenty eight, Trump nomination twenty thirty two, and he dies on the campaign trail. That's really what this country deserves. <laughs> I mean, it'll save the Democratic Party, won't it? it I mean, it would. Uh, you know, it'd be very good if that happened for my mother's mental health in some ways, but not others, you know, because she'd have to continue looking at Donald Trump. But that's that's not, you know. But, but like in this current crisis of liberalism, what has been amazing, actually, is we no longer know what conservatism is. We increasingly don't really know what the left is. Um. It had a moment of clarity for the first time since probably the time period that Lash was writing about, and it's over. 
Uh, and it seems more weird, way more weird than in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, if, if, uh, if the tendency of a desire to heighten alienation is still true, you know, America is much more welcoming place in many ways of many different political persuasions and cultural ideas than it used to be. So you have to reach farther out if you want to stay alienated. Exactly, which is why Twitter is a fucking weird hellscape and why stuff like esoteric Hitlerism and like and whatever is popular. Yeah, and like Yakiism and it's and, it's not true, I want to say also of just the left. This is also true of the right. Everybody no, the right, that they're all super weird. The 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 right is more the, I'd actually argue, and I know a lot of leftists disagree with me because they've never been on the right. I actually argue that the right's been suffering an identity crisis. Since the Bush administration, since the middle of the Bush administration, it was clear that neoconservatism was over, but it was not clear what the hell was going to replace it, which is why the actual Trump administration, not the not the one people like Christian Parenti want to clean up, you know, um, and I like some of Christian Parenti's writings. I'm not totally against everything he says, but this this re- reviewing Trump. Yeah, Trump had an aversion to war. I actually do think he had a personal version of war. But he also did not have enough of an aversion to keep the, the last bastion of the worst end of the neocons, the worst end of the neocons, out of his cabinet. Like, he replaced paleoconservative anti-war people with John people like John Bolton. Yeah. Which also tells me that Trump's lizard brain couldn't figure out what even his like the GOP wanted as a compromise to stay in power. It, yeah. It, I mean, this lends credence to my, he's just an idiot theory. <laughs> um, I, I think he's a lizard brain genius, but that, that doesn't preclude him being an idiot. Yeah. Like, I guess that's like, true. Um, like lizard brain and forebrain are very different things. When we're talking about Trump. I guess that's true. Whereas like, uh, whereas, like someone like Ron DeSantis is is petty forebrain, he does not actually have the lizard brain. He's all like calculated cruelty, and like, and he's not charismatic. No, there's nothing natural about the way he moves. Right. Uh, but um, and th- this whole like this whole thing that even I used to say that the, the fear of, of we should all be afraid of what comes after Trump because it might actually be coherent and or smart so far that hasn't paid no. out, which um, I'm like kind of grateful for. But yeah. Then. Yeah. Though again, like with the same way that we said in the last episode that we'll know if neoliberalism has been replaced in about 10 years. We'll know if we should be grateful for that in about ten years, <laughs> right? We, yeah, we'll know once, once, once post thirty thirty two, Trump corpse, you know, running again round eighty, um, goes away uh, because he just dies um, of natural causes at like a hundred and four or something, and. Um, Because of genetics and spite, um, well, and he doesn't drink. Yeah, that does help. Um, uh, 
And people, I was like, oh, he eats like crap. I'm like, yeah, but he doesn't drink. That does kind of like... Did you, did you hear uh, on the recording of this? We're recording this right after the um, the recording of him, like, doing his secret document bullshit, like, uh, came out. And at the end of the recording, the last thing you hear is, hey, can you bring a couple of Cokes in? Which is so funny. I, I mean, I feel that's... Like- I, mean, I, I actually that's one of the things that Trump does that I'm actually sympathetic for, because when I quit drinking, I also became a, a, a Coca-Cola fiend. Yeah, I mean, not not sugar Coke. I like him drink non-sugar variety, but not diet. I prefer zero. But still, uh, yes, I am a I am a and, and if I get when I try to quit Cokes, I drink fizzy water like that's what I drink. I like and, fizzy water. Uh, I drink down with a fizzy water uh, podcast. I'm down with the fizzy water and I like tea, but like I, I have discovered that I still drink copious amounts of stuff now that I don't really drink alcohol that much. And it's just like, it's like, no, I still have the habit, but it just is it's no longer as debilitating. This is why you and Trump will outlive us all. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do look pretty young for, to be 40 something. I will say really? that. Um, uh, so I guess this leads me though to this like real serious paradox for me that we've talked about liberalism's in crisis again. We know from last time that it changed significantly during the long seventies into the horror show that it became during all of my lifetime. Um, we have no idea what the fuck is going on right now. So for example, I have been pretty good at predicting elections for most of my life. Uh, I predicted Obama. I did not. I predicted Biden. Actually, the only part of it is I didn't predict Georgia, which is funny because it's my home state. But um, I and yet more than any other time in my life, I feel like not only do I feel like we're going back to a like 60s, 70s era of like short term presidencies for a variety of reasons. Uh, I also have no idea how it's going to play out. Like, yeah, it, it really does feel like a black box, like all these baby boomer standards and institutions and stuff are really falling apart. And and there's nothing coming up to replace them. Right. And I mean, I also think uh, for for those of you who want to like really get my my real dark things, I think that's true in the international scale too. Like, oh, BRICS, whatever. Like, BRICS is not actually even trying to replace the transatlantic superstate. And maybe that's good. Maybe it's, you know, maybe that's terrible. It's but it's happening. We don't know what it means. Our our Fukuyama episode. Yep, we'll come back to this because it'll be important in our Fukuyama exercise. But it's it's like so we have this undead liberalism that like is in crisis, and we've been talking about it being in crisis since the end of the Bush administration, really. Right? Think about Fried Zakaria, like the like the you know the crisis, the multipolarity, and the crisis of the post-American world. Like, which is a liberal book, you know. Um. And that's predicting a crisis of liberalism because of geopolitical reasons and the change of world markets. But that's in 2007. And we've been kind of stuck in this zombie world where the center that we keep on predicting is going to die and has no organic base. Like, this is what's so interesting about now. 
the center before had the largest chunk of American political support really did even in the, in the nineties and the beginnings of the odds, it started to slip at the late nineties. Now it's like 10% of the population and only rules because nobody else can really dominate anything. Like, because there is no dominant counter tendency, but it's actually a minority position in the electorate. And that, that's a real, like, that's a, re- that's some weird, like, king shit. By, 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 I mean, like, you know what I mean by king shit? Like, oh, this is a, this is a, a singular faction that's able to dominate because it plays other factions off of each other. Like, not because it actually has an organically strong base yeah. or even a strong base in the government. Like, yeah. it has a uh, permanent veto, you know, veto slot over what goes on anywhere in the legislative state. Uh, at the national level, I should say, not at right. the state Which is interesting because that happens in continental European periphery countries like Italy, but it doesn't tend to happen in in countries like Britain or the United States. And that very much, like, also, like, look at Britain. Like, the Tories are more unpopular than ever, but, like, it's not clear with it, this new, new, new labor is going to be any different than a Tory government. Like... In fact, they're trying to argue like we're the real conservatives, and I'm like, yeah, oh like, my god, we'll do law and order and do tax cuts, right? It's just like it's like okay, so you're just arguing. I mean, it, it is kind of like Clintonism again. Like you're arguing uh, our Blairism from the British perspective. That uh, yeah, we, we the 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 Corbyn experiment lost so bad and only came to power by accident anyway that we're just never going to do that again. But also, like, if people think America's poorly run, Britain is a shit show. Like, its inflation is way higher than ours. Its unemployment is way higher than ours. It has no real industrial policy to speak of. It like doesn't even clearly have clear trade partners of which it can clearly integrate with anymore. Like, um, it's not, it's, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. We're like the America needs British goods. Really? Um, it's, I, I will take your tea, I guess. Um, I mean, it's not, it, it in some ways actually is kind of the model for what the worst case scenario of the United States could become. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, uh, and in some ways I'm also interested in the fact that we don't really know what's going to happen in the United States because on paper, from a material standpoint, we're still set up pretty good. That's the thing. Like, Yes, we're having crop problems. We're having less than other parts of the world. Yes, we uh, we are having troubles with the with the with reorienting. But we have a huge trade network with friendly with friendly country neighbors in both directions. That's we've, really highly integrated. We've just like thrown a ton of money at like you know oversupply of computer chips and energy policy. You know, and we have we're an oil exporter. Um. You know, we're American a breadbasket. We're a breadbasket. There's a lot of advantages to America's position in the world economy. Definitely. And yet, 
we seem like and I have almost thought about this as a challenge to my Marxist materialism because I'm like, yet it seems like we're insane. Like that, like by every material input, we should be perfectly able to handle this current reorientation and crisis pretty well. We're way better than like Britain at the end of its empire, which is a fucking island. It's the um, soils thing that we've been doing. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's like something's happened in the fragmentation of the baby boomer culture that's like made it impossible to run our fucking society. And and in that sense, like I do have to take I have to take Lash to bring it back to Lash in a very real way, somewhat seriously, that this cultural stuff is not just like an epiphenomenal superstructure. It is very much tied into the structure of material life in a way that you cannot ignore it. And if you do, you're going to be horribly wrong. Well, like, we replaced a, um, a, you know, we, we knew we had to do that because we replaced a baby boomer president with a uh, silent generation president. <laughs> oh man. This is the revenge of the old before they all die. So true. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was funny because it's like there was this trend until Trump of like after Reagan presidents getting younger and younger. Um, Clinton, then then uh, then Bush, then then oh, Obama wow. are all being fairly young presidents, right? I, I think Obama will be probably our only Gen X president. He's not. <laughs> he's not technically Gen X. Oh, he's a boomer too. Technically, yeah. I think he's in that weird. Uh, he is two boomers are. like I am to Gen X. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But, but yeah, the I mean, I think like the basic point from before, before I made that crack, is true. Like, there's something weird that's captured in this description of the politics of the '60s, which we keep coming back to. Because it defines our world and it defines the um, the cultural framework of our world and the reason why it's not able to operate uh, at any level for some reason. Um, and it's the reason, on you know, in some sense why we're trapped or at least it's something we're trapped in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I think that that leads us in a kind of dismal place in a lot of ways. Um, uh, but on a on a side note, I don't think it's a dismal place that's going to last a lot longer. I just think any left that still exists is going to have to be pretty open to just being honest and saying, we don't know what the hell is going on because all of our priors are shot, right? Like... Um, and I also think I, I, I want to float this by you, though. Uh, one thing one thing that Platypus did actually instillate to me is they once challenged me to say, you'll see people pulling to earlier and earlier portions of the left. Now, I also challenge them and say, I think we'll see the rebirth of weird Stalinism for people to differentiate themselves with the DSA as a manifestation of their own alienation and powerlessness once Bernie inevitably loses. Um, Which I was right about. But they they told me to look at you'll see people go further and further back. So you'll see, you know, and I think that's been true, too. So like people like we're going to revive the left with Neokowskiism. What's Neokowskiism? Pre-1917 Marxism. Mm -hmm. 
and this was also a tendency of the new left was like oh let's go back to like the first international or whatever like we want to go back to the period before this all got ugly and hard to deal with and actually involved real states and whatnot um i think we'll see a little bit more of that before it's over like I think that's even true in this like current attempt to revive the people's party in some weird left right alliance. Cause I'm like, we're going back to the 19th century. You don't have any of the same class base at all. Like what, like where's this coming from? Because you seem to be confusing cultural positions with a class based position, like in a real sense. They're trying to tap into the vibes of yesteryear. Right. Yeah. It's very much a vibes based argument. Like, well, but, but, but the working class, they're not like PMC liberals. They have white collar, I mean, blue collar vibes and like peasant, you peasant, but sharecropper vibes. Really? Hey, I mean, this is the reason why, like, some argument is just vibes. If it boils down to it, like a lot of the most, the most, interesting strains of debate on the left now and on the academic left specifically are basically vibes. It's like, what do you do with tech? What do you do with Biden? What do you do with Trump? Well, we have no answer. So it's just vibes. And then we'll, you know, use some figures to justify those vibes. Um, and I think what you got to do is you got to just learn to love the vibe. Um, though, I can say that because because I'm uh you know I'm I'm just very aware of the fact that the left lost um or the type of the left that inspired me to get into the left in the first place you know 5 years ago or 6 years ago whatever is over and there'll be something at some point but in the meantime we just got to ride the wave I think that's a fair enough point. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening.